So Isaiah chapter 36, that's page 596 in your pew Bible, if you're uh, using the pew Bible. And you, if you just want to listen along, that's fine, uh, but it is important that we get the whole context. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lashkish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shibda, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are a strategy for power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he who high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots? And for horsemen. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master? And to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who were doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver. The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Syria. Do not listen with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of your own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land of your own, to a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of his hand of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, 
to the prophet Isaiah the son of Amoz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of great distress, of rebuke and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Red Shekah, whom his master the king of Assyria has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The gods, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezpa, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Zerophim, the king of Hina, and the king of Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, all the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib which you have sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. We are here in Isaiah chapter 36, and, uh, you know, crisis hits our lives at various times and various ways. Um, today we'll see Judah, and we've already heard it, but we'll look at it more in depth. Uh, Judah is facing a fierce crisis. Uh, this king of Assyria has marched his army down, and he sent his herald to, to proclaim what's about to happen to Judah, basically saying, I'm going to wipe you off the map. You're going to be no more. And it looks as if the great army of Assyria will destroy Jerusalem, and Judah will be extinguished. Actually, verses or chapters 36 and 39 form a, a uh, 
bridge, uh, historical bridge between the former chapters of Isaiah and, and what's to come latter. It, it serves as the bridge between the downfall of Assyria and the rising Babylon, which will be much of the content of the rest of the book, uh, and even looking forward in the prophecies of uh, the King of Kings coming. So we have a lot to look forward to. Um, this time frame for this historical event is uh, in the year 701 B.C., at some four years into the reign of Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria. And so uh, there's a lot of historical content we have even outside the Bible to verify all this happening. And, and the reason I wanted to read the narrative is, is it's important. This historical narrative gives us a view of not only the life of Israel and Judah, but the God of all nations who's at work in their lives. I want to ask you this, how do you respond to crisis in your life? Secondly, what is your hope when immense crisis hits your life? How do you respond and what's your hope when crisis of all kinds, any kind, hits your life? I've already read this text, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for the preaching of God's word. Pray with me if you will. O oh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of history, the God of the nations, and the God of all armies, We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We exalt you. We adore you. We gather around with the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim, you who reign high, lifted up, holy, lofty, powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-kind God. Holy Spirit, hover over us and teach us your word. We need to be transformed by your word. We need the word to make us living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. Do this now, we pray. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. Many wanted a job as a signalman from the railroad company. At his interview, the inspector asked him, what would you do if you saw two trains heading for each other on the same track? Benny replied, well, I would switch the points for one of the trains. Good, but what if the lever broke, asked the inspector. Then I'd run down to the signal box and use the manual lever there. What if lightning struck it, asked the inspector. Benny said, then I'd run back into the signal box and phone the next signal box. Good, but what if that phone was engaged? Well, in that case, persevered Benny, I'd rush down out of the box and use the public emergency phone at the level of the crossing up there. What would you do if that was vandalized? Well, I would then run into the village and get my Uncle Toby. Why would you do that? Because Uncle Toby has never seen a train wreck. Often we face crisis in our lives. And and God does give us gifts. He gives us talents and abilities to figure out what to do when crisis hits. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have to say, who is in control? Who is in real control? How how do we walk through a train wreck? Maybe a a train that is oncoming or a wreck that's already happening. When you are exhausted, all your competence is laid low. 
What next? What next? You can go get Uncle Toby. He's not going to help. We must, we must turn to the power of Almighty God. Suffering is an inevitable part of our lives. It's going to happen. That's one of the things we, we often forget as Americans. We, we live uh, in a land of pleasure and ease. And yet we forget what the Bible often tells us. You will suffer because of the fall. And flowing out of the fall of man, out of Eden, is, is what our confession tells us. Sin and misery. Uh, sin and misery hit us in, in different angles of our lives. Very often. Maybe even momentarily. We're often prone to resign ourselves to what we call fate, which is false, instead of the sovereign God, which is true. You see, there is no enigmatic fate hanging over us that's just impersonal out there, it's going to happen. But there is a sovereign God, a sovereign Lord of all the nations who is intimately involved and looks down from heaven, Psalm 33 says, and discerns the hearts of all men whom he created. I want to encourage you this morning, and this is our main point, the sovereign God of the universe, our God, is the Lord over the nations, and he calls you to the prayer of desperation. So that you will depend solely on him for deliverance. I'm going to say that again. It's a long sentence. The sovereign God of the universe, our God, is Lord over the nations. And he calls you to the prayer of desperation so that you will depend solely on him for deliverance. Now I want to work through that with two ways, two points. Uh, First, discerning the crisis, which we see with with, um, Hezekiah. And then secondly, responding. So we'll look at historically what's happening and then move toward response. Now at this point, if you remember, Ahaz uh, is the father of Hezekiah. He had made an alliance with Assyria, if you think back to chapter 7 of Isaiah. He didn't trust the Lord. The Lord said, I'll give you, I'll give you a sign, ask of me. And he said, no, I don't, I don't want that. So he went to Assyria uh, because Syria and another nation were, were going to attack. And so he goes to Syria and says, hey, I'll, I'll be your vassal kingdom. I'll pay you tribute. You protect me. That's how it's going to work. And that happened often in the ancient Near East. Our last time stamp in Isaiah was in 14, chapter 14, 28. It says the year Ahaz died. And so now we're told that this historical account happened in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So, so there's time that has passed. Uh, a lot has happened among the nations surrounding Israel. Before we dive in more, I want to tell you a little bit about Hezekiah, if you don't know about him. Listen to the account in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 3 through 7. And he, Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was, listen to this, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. That is a huge statement. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went, and he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. 
from the watchtower to the fortified city. Whoa. Okay. So this man has touted the greatest king of Israel. Of Judah, actually. He has touted the greatest king. And, and so we're thinking, man, this, this is a wonderful guy, which he was. He followed the Lord with all of his heart. It says that here. So let's keep that in mind as we move forward. Hezekiah sought the Lord wholeheartedly. That's an important thing to remember. You see, Hezekiah reversed all the wickedness of his father. He tore down the worship of the idols, even the worship of the bronze serpent. That was a good thing. It was a, a memorial of what God had done. They turned it into worship, worshiping that thing instead of the sovereign Lord. A very thorough account is given in Second Chronicles 29-32. I commend it to your reading. It's, it's very good reading about Hezekiah and all that he done to restore the temple, to restore the worship of the temple, to restore the priesthood even, uh, and restore the book of the law being read. So revival had happened within Israel or Judah, and Hezekiah rebelled against Assyria by stopping the payments for protection. So he's basically like, I'm not going to pay you rent anymore. We've, we've got our God, and he's going to protect us. That's what Hezekiah essentially was saying. I don't need your protection. We've, we're worshiping our holy God now. He's got us. So Sennacherib sends his army and his top official. This top official, the title is Rebshekah. That's what that means, is a, a top official of a kingdom. He acts as a herald of the great king of Assyria, offering, tr- offering treaty to those who will submit and offering destruction to those who will re- rebel. Did you notice how he mocks Judah? Did you notice how he mocks Hezekiah? How he even goes far to mock the God of Israel? Notice in verses 4 through 10 in chapter 36, the Reb Shekah questions Judah's trust in alliances with Egypt and ultimate trust in the Lord. Then in verse 10, he actually terrorizes the men on the wall and says, hey, do you not know that you actually your God sent me? So you're doomed, whatever. You're doomed. You have no way out. This man is engaging in intense psychological warfare right here. The, way, the words he uses are meant, are sharpened as arrows to the heart of the people to attack not only their confidence in themselves, but their confidence in the Lord their God. You need to notice that. If you saw in verses 11 through 12, the men actually asked the, uh, the herald to speak in the trade language of Aramaic. That was the lingua franca or the trade language of that day, Aramaic. They, the upper people knew it, the lower class didn't. And so they said, hey, speak in Aramaic so we, we'll understand you and we'll take it to the king. They didn't want everybody shaking in their boots in the city. And this guy says, no. He goes past what's usually honorable and done in that day and says, no, I'm going to speak in your heart language so everybody can hear so they know, they know what's ahead of them. He continues on, verses 14 through 17, he accuses Hezekiah of misleading Judah to trust in Yahweh. Verses 18 through 20, the Rabshakeh uses powerful rhetorical persuasion. Did the gods of the other nations deliver them? Hey, look at these other nations, we've already mowed them down. What did their gods do for them? Implicitly saying, your God is impotent, Israel or Judah. 
Notice the key word in this whole section in 18 through 20 is deliver. It's said seven times. This is the issue. Who will deliver you? Who will deliver you, O Judah? Notice this word deliver is important. We should also know that Assyria is one of the most powerful empires of the ancient Near East ever. It was huge. Not only were they powerful, they were wicked. You remember the story decades earlier, this prophet called Jonah, how he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. He didn't want to go to Assyria because he knew their wickedness, and he was even angry when God showed his kindness toward Nineveh after they repented. Why? Because he knew how wicked they were. He didn't want them to be delivered. He didn't want the kindness of God to, to be shown to Nineveh, this wicked, wicked empire. It's been reported that they would cut off the arms of their captives, gouge out their eyes, and even cut off their tongues. Thousands, thousands of captives they would do this to. So here they are, laying seeds to Jerusalem, ready to tear it down, tear the walls down, destroy everyone in the city. I want to pause for a moment. This is just not about historical Judah and Assyria back there. What is your crisis today? Who, what or who is laying seeds to your life? Your family's life? Maybe your kids' hearts? What is besieging you? What is besieging your soul? What voices are coming in and telling you, don't trust the Lord, don't trust your God, do all you can to protect yourself or to answer the ache in your soul? Gather, 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 strategize, strategize, scheme, scheme. We don't live in fortified walls, fortified cities this day and age, but we do have many things that often land on our plates, intersect our lives, bring us to a crossroad or a fork in the road where we have to make big decisions. And we have to battle maybe internally. Or maybe there's a battle raging in your extended family or in your office or at your school. It's a place of bewilderment where all your resources are exhausted and facing the enemy of your soul. It's either someone external or your sin. Your own sin may be popping up over and over again and you can't, you can't push it away and you're bewildered. Or maybe it's the enemy coming in and saying, you're no good. You're worth nothing. Using the voice of shame to tell you that you're not created in God's image. What do you do when this happens? Well, that leads to our second point. We see the crisis. We recognize it like Hezekiah did and all his officials. We see it. So what? What do we do? Look at his response. Hezekiah's response in in chapter 37, 1 through 4. He humbled himself in sackcloth and ashes, which is, this is an outward sign of mourning, of grieving, of humility, and of prayer. Anytime we see sackcloth, even ashes, it is a sign of desperate prayer. Then he calls for Isaiah, and at the end of verse 4, ask him to pray. Isaiah, help, pray, help me pray. 
Isaiah responds with a prophecy. Look with me at at verses 6 through 7. I'm going to read that again of chapter 37. Isaiah said to him, Say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. That had to be a huge encouragement to Hezekiah to hear this. But still, there's the armies. They're out there. We got this promise, this prophecy, but the armies are still there. What's going to happen? God says, I'll send the Spirit to whisper in the ear of Sennacherib to go put out another fire in his kingdom, to go battle somewhere else, to pull him away, which he does, and the army withdraws for a time. But then in verses 8 through 13 of that chapter, the Reb Shekha sends a threatening letter to Hezekiah, basically reiterating what he's already said. Hey, we're going to mow you down. Here we come. We're going to take care of this fire over here, and here we come. So in verse 14, as an act of bewildered faith, Hezekiah reads the letter, then goes into the temple. We should notice his actions. And then, I love this, he spreads out the letter before the Lord. He spreads it out. My encouragement today is whatever is besieging your life, spread it out before the Lord. Spread it out. Even if you have to write down every detail, take it to the Lord in prayer. Every detail. I want to notice four things. I want to draw draw out four things about Hezekiah's prayer that I think will encourage us here. First, worship. He begins with God's character. Look at verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the nations, or on the kingdom to the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So he starts with God's character. God, this is who you are. Now God knows who he is. He didn't need to remind God, but he and essentially is reminding himself in worship. Oh God, you're exalted, high and lifted up. So first is worship. Second is realism. And this should help us with our prayers. He calls out to God to see his plight with detail. Look at verses 17 and 18. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their land. Friends, we're not called to fake it in prayer. We're not called to pretend in prayer. We are called to pour out our hearts over and over again with such realism about life. Raw, unfettered realism. God loves it. He calls for it. He wants it. So worship, realism. Third is faith. You see, he renounces the gods of the nations and their impotence to save. Verse 19 And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands. Wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. These gods of the other nations, these gods that uh, this herald has said were their gods, Hezekiah says, they are no gods. You are God, I worship you. It's a statement of faith renouncing those gods and turning to 
the God of the universe. And lastly and fourthly, it's a desperate cry seeking deliverance for God's fame and glory. Look at verse 20. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. It's such a God-centered prayer. Save so that the nations will know that you are God. It's the same for us. Help me, Lord. I want to have a story to tell about your deliverance, about your kingdom. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, told a story in one of his sermons on prayer, and I want to share it with you this morning. He says this, When the Athenian Senate, upon one occasion, found it most convenient to meet together in the open air, as they were sitting in their deliberations, a sparrow, pursued by a hawk, flew in the direction of the Senate. Being hard-pressed by the bird of prey, it sought shelter in the bosom of one of the senators. He, being a man of rough and vulgar mold, took the bird from his bosom, dashed it on the ground, and so killed it. Whereupon the whole Senate rose in uproar, And without one single dissenting voice condemned him to die as being unworthy of a seat in the Senate with them or to be called an Athenian if he did not render succor or shelter to a creature that confided in him. Can we suppose that the God of heaven whose nature is love would tear out his bosom, the poor fluttering dove that flies from the eagle of justice into the bosom of his mercy? Will he give the invitation for us to seek his face? And when... He, as he knows, with much trepidation and fear, yet summon courage enough to fly into his bosom. Will he then be unjust and ungracious enough to forget, to hear our cry and answer us? Let us not think so hardly of the God of heaven. And what he's saying is that God is not like this Athenian senator. God is a God who would take us in and protect us in his shelter. Who will hear our cries and protect us with his strong arms of love. Because he is kind. God answers powerfully. Now I want to point out here, there are no time stamps to tell us how much time elapsed between Hezekiah's prayer and God's answer. It could have been hours, days, or even months. Now Isaiah didn't send a text message to, um, or Hezekiah didn't send a text message to Isaiah and wasn't a return text to Hezekiah instantly. There There was passage of time in which we ought to see that Isaiah, Hezekiah, all had to wait for the Lord. Scripture often exhorts us to wait on the Lord over and over again. You know, God's timing is never ours. It has been said that God is never late. And His timing is impeccable and inscrutable. This is our God. God does respond through his own herald, Isaiah, highlighting the mockery of Assyria in verses 23 and 24, and reminding all that Yahweh is the sovereign Lord of history, verses 26 and 27. Then God forecasts that he is leading Assyria away and actually going to destroy the kingdom of Assyria in verses 28 and 29. At the end of the chapter of Chapter 37, we see the angel of the Lord actually going out and killing 185,000 of the armies of Sennacherib, which is an absolute miracle. And there is documentation of that happening outside of the Bible as an historical event. Why did God do this? Why did, why did he deliver Hezekiah and Judah? 
I want to end on this, this thought. In verse 32, it says, out of the zeal of the Lord, the zeal of the Lord would do this. But there's more. Look at verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now this is key. I will defend it for my own sake and the sake of my servant David. Why? Because God is a God of promise. He doesn't go back on his promise and he had made a covenant with David. What was that covenant? 2 Samuel 7 Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, he says to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He says on down, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. The throne shall be established forever In accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Key word, forever. God has promised to David that his kingdom would stand forever. Nothing will shake it. And here in this historical event, God shows up to keep his promise. In other words, God had promised to sustain the throne of David. Therefore, he had to preserve a remnant of Judah for the Messiah king to be born. So why does our prayers have power? Is it because you, you, uh, you pray hard? Is it because you have this format that Hezekiah had? Is it because, I mean, you can go get sackcloth and ashes. Is it because of that? No. What gives power to our prayer? Is it something you generate in and of yourself? The answer is no. What gives power to prayer is the promise of God. And furthermore the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. You see, Hezekiah indeed was a great man. Second Kings 18 was true. He did a lot of great things. It says he followed the commands of the Lord, but did he do it perfectly? The answer is no. You'll, you can see that in the next chapter. He actually called Babylon in to see all the riches of his kingdom and sought alliance with Babylon and, and in, in a subtle way turned away from the Lord. Hezekiah was not quite it. There were probably people in those days who thought, oh my goodness, Hezekiah, he's the great king. He's the one that's been forecasted. He's going to take us where we need to be into a land of freedom, the promised land. But he wasn't it. It wasn't him. He was a fallen man. You see, God had a plan from all the ages. The Messiah king would come hundreds of years later and be born to a virgin in an obscure place outside of town. God's sovereign plan unfolded beautifully. He kept a remnant so that we can have the king. He has delivered us from the impotent gods of the nations. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the king of the son of light. Why do our prayers have power? Because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has come, he died, he rose again, he ascended, he stands at the throne of God with his blood and intercedes for us. And it says in Romans 8, he even sends his spirit who prays for us when we're, we don't know what to pray. Thank God. What gives us power in prayer? King Jesus and his spirit who is with us now. What will help us in crisis? Crying out to this king who is already crying out for us on our behalf.
Your prayer is not effective because of something you achieve. It's not effective by the many words or the chosen words you have. It's affected and powerful because of him who has achieved all. Him who had kept all the commands of God to a T and died for us. It's this King Jesus who will come again and lay siege on evil in the future. He will put his hook in the nose of evil and drag it off this earth and make this earth beautiful. And heaven and earth will be one. That's who our Jesus is. And this whole historical account points forward to the need for deliverance, not only for Judah in that era, but for all of God's people for all time. And that's what King Jesus does through his cross, his first coming, and through his second coming. We have hope. Let that hope move us to prayer, to crying out in humility and desperation to our great God who delights to save. If you remember, the whole theme of the book of Isaiah is salvation is of the Lord. That's the meaning of Isaiah's very name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a great, great God you are. You're the God of the nations. You move the nations, nations rise and nations fall because of your decree. And certainly, all the events of our lives rise and fall. We say with Job, Lord, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we say with Joseph, what you intended for evil, God intends for good. And we say with Paul, the apostle, that all things are good for those who are called by God according to his purpose. Thank you. Lord, help us to cling to you as your people and to trust that you are the God who saves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.